First Peter chapter 1, we have this. I was communicating with Sam Davison this past week. He asked, how is it going with First Peter? I said, slow. And uh, here we are, fourth message, and we're not getting very far. I, I, I keep saying we're going to pick up the pace. And he reminded me, don't go too fast that we miss. But I also don't want to get too bogged down that we create messages that aren't there. And so that's why I'm always looking for what's the big idea? Why did God write this for the people that he wrote it to initially? We get that big idea, then we can find our relevant applications from there. But let's stand this morning and, and let's look at verse number 10, 11, and 12. And I hope this will make sense to you this morning. I'm really excited about this. I hope you'll be as excited. If you're not, I'm excited about this. And I found some other people we'll see in the message this morning are excited about it. Verse number 10, the Bible says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Well, the beautiful King James is just written so well. But I pray that our familiarity with the passage, maybe it's not as familiar to you, but we wouldn't lose sight of the, the richness of what is written, but also the eloquence, the beautiful eloquence, that we don't lose sight of the significance of what he's saying to us. And that is why we have preaching. To be able to elaborate and to explain these wonderful verses. Remember, Peter is writing, the one who walked with Jesus and, and experienced even suffering himself. Peter is going to die sometime after this and he's going to die on the cross. But not feeling worthy to die the way Jesus, his Savior, his friend, his master and leader died. He requested to be crucified upside down. He understood persecution and he's writing to those who scattered and, and, and going through persecution and trials. And, and the truth is persecution will either cause you to grow. Trials will either cause you, trouble will either cause you to grow or grumble. It all depends upon your response. And Peter is reminding them of this living hope that they have, this great inheritance now, just to give you what we've done thus far, verses 3 through 5, he talked about this future salvation. This, this, that will be revealed at the last time. We looked at verse 6 through 9 last week and talked about the, the salvation that we have in the present trial and adversity. There are some things that will only be won within the fire, the, the crisis of trial. And so he wrote to them about that. In verse 10 through 12 that we're looking at this morning, he's talking about, let's take a look at our salvation as it pertains to the past. And so this morning, 
I want to preach this thought. The wonder of our salvation. The wonder of our salvation. That's what I believe verse 10, 11, and 12 is trying to get across to us. The wonder of our salvation. Thank you. Please be seated. The seven wonders of the ancient world, also known as the seven wonders of the world. And there's even an update each year. And now there's a, the new seven wonders of the world. It, it's a title that's awarded because of that which has been established as something magnificent. Most beautiful, most awe-inspiring constructions made by men. Unlike any other establishment in the world, the wonders of the world. As you read these opening verses of 1 Peter, and I encourage you to just keep reading them. Try to memorize them. Meditate upon them. Because what you find is a key word that keeps coming up again and again. It's the word salvation. And even when you don't see the word salvation, you find his describing the concept of salvation. Salvation, salvation, salvation. All throughout these beginning verses. Hey, that's the work of the church. We're, we're to see people saved. But thankfully, our great commission is not just to see people saved. In fact, the imperative, the command in the great commission is to make disciples so that indicates that it's a given we ought to be about this matter of seeing people saved. To experience something, this matter of salvation, he says in verse 10, 11, and 12, that great and wise, holy prophets, people, they long to experience, they, they long to see it, but they, they couldn't experience it, they couldn't quite grasp it. He says in these verses, Peter wants us to feel more gratitude. He wants us to experience more wonder for our salvation because he says the prophets of God and even the angels long to see what we have now experienced through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the main point of this paragraph, verse 10, 11, and 12, is that we, if you've been saved, we should be amazed at the greatness of our salvation and that this greatness is shown by the fact that prophets of God and the angels of heaven long to look into it. You know what should motivate you, Peter's telling us? It's salvation. It's what you've experienced. See, when people talk about, I just feel like we just get uh, uh, roped into doing things for, for the church or for God. We, we get, we get uh, browbeaten to, to serve. That, that's not my problem. It sounds like you've lost the wonder of your salvation. You, you, you taste and see that God is good. Where else are you going to turn? Peter said, where else am I going to go? The multitudes walked away from Jesus. And Peter said, where else are we going to go? Because we know something, Peter is saying, of the wonder of our salvation. So question. You ought to ask yourself this question. Do I need to be saved? Do I need to be saved? 
Do you need to be saved? The question is not do you think you need to be saved. Because you may not think you need it. You know, if you were sitting here and, and there is a, a plane just like took place September 11th, 2001, a plane that is heading for this building that is about to crash into this building, you wouldn't know that unless somebody were to tell you. You wouldn't think we need an emergency operation, rescue, or evacuation unless somebody told you. You wouldn't think you needed rescuing this morning. There are a lot of people who don't think they need Jesus to save them. So the question is not do you think so. The question is do you? And I say upon the authority of the word of God, Jesus said to the most religious man of his day, you must be born again. Therefore, everybody needs to be born again. Everybody needs Bible salvation. Let Peter then, from his own letter, help you, judge you and judge me about our own need. And may the Spirit of God help us to be honest. And so I want us just to look through 1 Peter here. And this is the introduction. But I want you to see this in 1 Peter to help you appreciate maybe what Peter's getting at in this matter of salvation. Well, what is it we need to be saved from? Well, look over in chapter 2 and verse 24. Peter says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. What do we need to be saved from? Sin. Christ bore our sins because we need to be saved from our sins. Sin is like a terminal disease that will kill us forever. And Christ's wounds is that which can heal our sins. Notice 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and quickened by the Spirit. And by the way, if you've ever used the Romans road to lead somebody to Jesus, you should try Peter's road. I've led people to the Lord using 1 Peter because you have the plan of the gospel of salvation even here in 1 Peter. But he's telling us Christ died for our sins because we need to be saved from our sins. Why? Because our sins separate us from God. So Christ died for our sins to bring us back into relationship with God. Notice 1 Peter 4 and verse 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? He says we need to be saved from God's judgment. See, sin is not just a terminal disease that needs healing. It's also terminal guilt that deserves judgment. So the gospel is the good news that Christ bears the judgment of all who trust him. And then notice 1 Peter 5 in verse number 8. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. In other words, you need to be saved from your sin. You need to be saved from judgment. But you also need to be saved from the devil. He's a liar. 
He's a murderer. And he's trying to destroy as many souls, as many homes as he possibly can so that he's not in hell alone. He's as a lion, which means he's far more powerful than you or I. So we need salvation from him. The Bible says the son of man, Jesus Christ, came into the world. This is 1 John 3 eight. He came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And Peter says, resist him, therefore. So Peter's answer to what do we need to be saved from is, we need to be saved from sin, the disease that will kill us, and the guilt, and the judgment of God, and the destruction of the devil. We need salvation. Let me ask you, when did you get saved? Not when did you get religion, not when did you join a church, not when did you experience goosebumps from God, but when did you get saved? And if you can't think of the time where you on purpose, you knew you were a sinner heading to hell, only Jesus could save you, and you asked on purpose, God, not just help me in school, God, don't just help my family, God, just don't help me in the area of my finances, but God, save my sin, sick, wretched soul, come into my life, be my Savior and my God, Lord and King. When did that happen? If it didn't, today's the day for you. Now's the day of salvation. Let me give you another thought. Here's a question from Peter. What do we need to be saved for? So do I need to be saved, number one? What do I need to be saved from? And number three, what do we need to be saved for? Go back to 1 Peter 2. Look at verse 25. Peter says, for ye were. What tense is that? Past. Ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. He says, before you were saved, you were away from him, but salvation means you're brought to a loving shepherd who will lead us into green pastures by still water. Notice 1 Peter 5 and verse 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So he says we're saved for. For what? For an inheritance of glory. No more shame, but honor. No more disgrace or humiliation, but the revelation of the glory of the children of God. Notice verse 10 of chapter 5. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. He says we're saved to share in the glory of Christ. And the result of this, of course, will be everlasting joy. Notice in 1 Peter 4 and verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. He's saying to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also that the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with indescribable joy. So that's what we're saved for. He said, well, what is all that? Well, he's saying we're saved for a personal 
relationship with the chief shepherd of your soul, the very one who saves your soul. He wants you to enter into this loving relationship where he can care for your soul. He doesn't just slap a warranty that says lifetime guarantee. No, he takes and he wants to shepherd your soul that you would experience the love and the joy and the peace and and all that God is because God is love. It's a participation in his eternal glory that will be given to him one day and, and, and experiencing a joy and an exaltation as eternal as the glory of God. So the word of God this morning, back to 1 Peter chapter 1. The word of God this morning, it's not the word of a newspaper. It's not the word of social media influencers. It's not the word of television. It's not the word of public schools or state university. But it's the word of the Apostle Peter speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who expresses the very mind of God. And it's this. This is what he's getting to in verse 10, 11, and 12. We need to be saved. We need to be saved from sin and Satan and judgment and saved for indescribable joy with the shepherd of our souls in light of the glory of God forever and ever and understand the wonder of our salvation. Now go to verse 10 and look at this of chapter one. Of which salvation, you see that? Do you see it? In other words, as to this salvation, and we just let our fingers do the walking in a few places in Peter to see something of our salvation. Do you see a little bit more as to when he says salvation, he's not just talking about something that happened in the past like your wedding date, your birth date your graduation date. He's not just talking about an event. He's talking about an ongoing, established forever wonder that surpasses any wonder of this world. As to this salvation, of which salvation? And he's going to give us five things this morning that describe the wonder and the reason we should be in amazement and wonder of our salvation. Would you note them with me? Number one. In verse 11 it says, Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And I want to start in verse 11. We'll go back to verse 10. So I'm just putting them in a different order. But the first thing about our salvation that brings a wonder to it is that Christ predicted it. He's telling us that Christ, the spirit of Christ within these prophets predicted. So Peter's pointing out the amazing fact that Christ himself, the spirit of Christ, Hundreds of years before his own death, before his own resurrection, was predicting his own death and his own resurrection. He predicted it. The Spirit of Christ, the middle of verse 11, which was in them did signify. Meaning, the, this Spirit of Christ within the prophets did 
predict the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. This means that Christ, the Son of God in heaven, has been contemplating his suffering and his death for centuries before it ever took place. In fact, as far back as the plan of salvation reaches in the mind of God, so far back has Christ been willing and ready to give himself for our sins. Listen, you were not loved for just a bloody moment on a hill called Calvary. You've been loved for endless ages in the eternal plan of the Father and the Son of God to sinners, to save sinners who would put their trust in him. Oh, what a wonderful salvation. It was predicted by Christ long before the world began. Number two, I want you to see a second dimension of this wonderful salvation, and that is the prophets longed to see it. Notice in verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So now Peter highlights the worth of our salvation, our salvation by telling us how the prophets longed to be a part of it. The prophets are preaching this. And they're longing to be a part of this. Christ came to Isaiah 700 years before the incarnation, before Jesus was born. In Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, Isaiah writes, Jesus speaking, or of Jesus, Isaiah speaking, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, when the Spirit of Christ told Isaiah to write that, Isaiah is saying this, O oh Lord, who? O oh Lord, when? Oh, Lord, how long, how long till this happens? The searching, the inquiring, the longing is an echo of the tremendous worth of our salvation in the hearts of holy men of God that God used to write this down. And so this ought to help us see that Christ predicted this wonderful salvation. The prophets who are talking about it all throughout their ministry, they're longing for it. It says in verse 10, they've inquired, they searched diligently, and they, they, they prophesied um, of the grace that should come. Verse 11, searching what or what manner of time. The word time, there's two Greek words for time. And one is talking about the, the, the moment, the minute. The other is talking about the season. And what they're asking for is, when's the season of when Jesus will come? When's this going to happen? Oh, they knew it was going to happen. Remember Dr. Child's teaching in class back in, uh, in Bible college back in the 90s. And, and he would talk about the Old Testament prophets. They would preach and they would talk about Jesus coming. And then they would talk about, and you'll find a lot of this in Isaiah in other passages, in other books, they're talking about another passage or another season called the millennial reign that we know of it to be. 
But the problem is they see these two mountain peaks, these Old Testament prophets. They just didn't know how much time was in between them. They look out and they know Jesus is coming. That's one mountain peak. And then they say there's another time in which we'll all be at peace and, and living unified with him where he will rule it, it, with, with a rod of righteousness. But they didn't know that so far there's 2,000 years in between those mountain peaks. They're just looking out from a distance and they're talking about it and they were looking for him as though he might be coming today. And these prophets are wondering, is this going to be today? When is this going to happen? This is something good. This is wonderful. Number three, a third dimension of this wonderful salvation. Verse number 12, it says, unto whom it was revealed, referring to the prophets, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Number three, these prophets served us in it. This wonderful salvation, what the prophets were doing, it was not for them, it was for us. What God gave them, the Lord's answer to their yearning cry, when is this going to happen? This is good stuff. When is Jesus coming? Jesus lets them know in verse 12, this is not for you. This is not serving you, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. This is not serving, this is serving a group known as Canaan Baptist Church who experienced being blood-bought, blood-washed. The Spirit of Christ said to Isaiah, you write it, but you be patient. You're not serving yourself or merely your own generation. You're serving saints hundreds of years from now. And they will see in your prophecy of me the proof that I am who I say that I am. And its truth will make its infinite value unshakable in their lives. And they'll know they've not lived in vain and you will not have lived and served in vain either. What a wonderful salvation. I'll give you a fourth thought. Verse 12, notice the second part of it. After he tells the prophets... This isn't for you. You're helping a group that will come. Understand it. Then notice what he says. With the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, notice the end of verse 12, which things the angels desire to look into it. Let me give you a, a fourth wonder of our salvation. The angels love to look into it. If you've been saved, it's something so wonderful that the angels love to look into it. I, I, if that don't wake you up, sometimes people say when you preach, I just my mind gets a hold of it. Well, don't let your mind do that. Tell your mind, no brain, don't be an idiot. Listen. What you, what you have going through your brain is not as good as what God has in his Bible. He is saying that our salvation is so wonderful that the angels 
desire to look into it. Now the words look into it, it means, listen, to stoop down and look carefully. Do you know that's the same Greek word that was used of Simon Peter when he came to the tomb of Jesus and he looked in that tomb? He had to stoop down. And when we went over there this past spring, when we went to that garden tomb, you know what we had to do if we looked into it? We had to stoop down. We did. Yeah. Unless you were Rick Jensen, you, 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 most of us would have to stoop down. It, 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 the Bible says the angels want to stoop down and look into salvation. Why? Because they're fascinated with the subject of salvation. Don't miss this. The angels desire to look into it. Now that doesn't mean that they want to, but they can't. That's not what it means. It means that they want to because in a sense, they're outsiders to the drama of sin and redemption. Why? Why are they outsiders? Because they've never sinned. They don't understand that part of it. And they love to watch the great work of God's salvation unfold in history and in the lives of his people. Listen, people have weird thoughts about angels. Someone dies, well, they become an angel. I hope not. That's not what he died to save me to become. I want something far better than being an angel. I want to be what he says. I am a child of God. An angel. They're looking at it with fascination. I can just imagine how the angels of God praise God when this world was created. I can imagine in my mind how silence fell upon the angels of God when man sinned in the Garden of Eden and they must have had a holy hush as they anticipated the judgment of a holy God against sin. And yet God said no. We're not going to condemn man. We're going to redeem man. The angels must have thought, how can this be? How can a holy God judge sin and let a sinner go free? And so the angels begin to look into salvation. Are you with me still this morning? They begin to listen to those prophets of God that Peter talks about as they they, these prophets searched as they preached the word of God and wrote the word of God. They began to listen to those they saw, these high priests offer the lamb on the day of atonement. They saw all the blood sacrifices that were made as God was teaching man, conditioning man that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. The angels continued to look intently when one day God said to Gabriel, Gabriel, come here. I have a job for you to do. You see that Jewish girl? You see that Jewish maiden over there? I want you to go down and tell her she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. I'm going to visit planet Earth in person as a human being. And angels of God in that heavenly choir the Lord's telling them, now you have nine months, Brother Autry, nine months to rehearse a new song. Can you believe that? Yeah. It's called glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
And when Jesus Christ was born, the angels sang that song. And in fascination, they watched as God and man were one. Jesus was God in the flesh. And they watched his life as a little body and a little boy growing into wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. They watched him in the carpenter's shop. They watched him as he was went about doing good, intent to glorify his father. They watched his mighty miracles. The angels were also there when he agonized in the garden. And the blood came from his head as great drops of blood from his forehead as he prayed in agony and said, Oh, my father, if it be possible, if there be any other way for man to be saved, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, let thy will be done. And the Bible says God sent angels to strengthen him. These angels watched in horror as Jesus was led away as he went through that mockery of a trial and they placed that purple robe upon his shoulders and a crown of thorns upon his tender brow. They spit upon him. They pulled out his beard and they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And the angels watched. Then they watched as he carried that cross to Golgotha's hill. It was nailed on that old rugged cross and suspended between heaven and earth. The angels must have drawn their swords and they must have said, Jesus, please let us come and rescue you from the cross. Lord, let us come and drive away your enemies. Lord, let us send them into hell. But Jesus said, don't you know, I could have called 12 legions of angels to deliver me, don't you know? But he did not call 10,000 angels to destroy the world and to set him free. He didn't call 10,000 angels. The songwriter said he died alone for you and me. The angels must have watched as he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost and then he was buried. And the Bible says on the third day when those women came early in the morning to look for the body of the Lord Jesus, to honor the body of the Lord Jesus and to anoint his body. The Bible says Jesus was not there. Amen. But the angels of God were there. The Bible says that there was an angel sitting on that stone that had been rolled away. Can you imagine? I just sometimes imagine what that look of that angel must have had. Thinking it's about time. It's about time. Later, the Bible says there were two angels there at that tomb. The angels were there. You see, they're fascinated by the subject of salvation. And then we're told when Jesus was ready to go back to the Father, and Jesus was there on the Mount of Olives, and he ascended back to the Father. The Bible says that the disciples were watching him in Acts chapter 1 and verse number, verse number 11. And as they were trying to get one more last glimpse of their Savior, the Bible says there were two men in white apparel who stood by and said, why gazing up into heaven, this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. What I'm saying is, what the Bible is saying is that the angels of God were there. And folks, the Bible teaches us that when Jesus comes again, he's coming back in the glory of his Father. Revelation chapter 20 with his holy angels. The Bible says salvation is the subject of fascination with the angels. And you know what? Until Jesus comes, 
They're interested right now in salvation. Do you know what the angels of God are doing according to Ephesians 3 and verse 10? And we heard Brother Davison preach about this. The angels of God make it a point to study the church of the living God. That they might understand the manifold wisdom of God. We praise God in the way we preach. We praise God in the way we sing. But you know we have a greater congregation than we could ever contain in this building. It's the host of heaven who's looking on this morning. A country preacher was preparing his sermon. He was working hard and late on a Saturday night. And his wife came to him and said, why in the world are you going through so much trouble to prepare this sermon? You know there's only going to be a handful of people to preach to tomorrow. He said, you just don't realize really how great a crowd is going to be there. All the holy angels of God are going to hear this sermon. And that's right. That's what Peter is saying. That's what the Bible is saying. That's what Paul was saying in Ephesians 3 and verse 10. There's an interest. There's a fascination that the angels have with the subject of your salvation and mine. And they're studying the church to understand the wisdom of God. And when it comes time for you to die, just like Miss Margaret Shannon took her last breath, the Bible teaches that the angels of God are going to usher us into the presence of the Heavenly Father. When Lazarus died, that beggar that Jesus talked about, the Bible says, behold, the angels came to carry him into Abraham's bosom. That's the Jewish concept of heaven. The angels of God came to carry him into the presence of God. Listen, <laughs> the Bible has a lot to say about angels. And it's fascinating. But maybe the most fascinating aspect of angels is their fascination with your salvation and mine. You see, they can experience what you and I have experienced if you're saved. They have never been that kind of a creature who had a moral choice that can be redeemed by God. Songwriter wrote, there is singing up in heaven such as we have never known where the angels sing the praises of the Lamb upon the throne. Their sweet harps are ever tuneful. Their voice is always clear. Oh, that we might be more like them while we serve the master here. But I hear another anthem, blending voices clear and strong. Unto him who hath redeemed us and hath bought us is the song. We've come through tribulations to this land so fair and bright. In the fountain freely flowing, he hath made our garments bright. And then he goes on and he says, Then the angels stand and listen. For they cannot join that song. Like the sound of many waters by that happy blood-washed throng. For they sing about great trials, battles fought and victories won. And they praise the great Redeemer who has said to them, well done. So, although I'm not an angel, yet I know that over there I will join a blessed chorus that the angels cannot share. I will sing about my Savior who upon dark Calvary freely parted my transgressions, died to set the sinner free. And here's the chorus. Brother Yusuf, you ought to sing this song. I think this would be a good one to sing. Here's the chorus. Holy, 
holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings. For angels never felt the joys that our salvation brings. Oh, what a wonderful thought. Here's Peter's point. If angels get excited about our salvation, how much more should we? If angels love to look at the work of God in saving sinners like us, how much more should we who are the very benefactors of that salvation? We're not just onlookers. We are the benefactors. And if they love to look into it and be thankful, Peter says, how much more should we? Oh, let me give you one other thought. And this is brief. Verse number 12. In fact, let's go ahead and stand together. It's so brief. Verse number 12. At the end of the verse, he says, the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. This is what makes our salvation so wonderful. And the fifth wonder of our salvation is this. The Holy Spirit brings it to us. The Holy Spirit brings it to us. The Holy Spirit. These things now have been announced to us through those who preach the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he was sent for. I think this is a good place to stop. That's what's happening right now. I'm preaching to you the gospel, the good news that Christ came into the world to save sinners with salvation of tremendous value, far more valuable than anything else you own or you know. But it's not just me that is calling your attention to the worth of Christ. It's His Holy Spirit. And if that's what He's doing, I urge you not to resist His call to salvation or His call to be in awe and wonder. You say, I I just don't have that awe and wonder. That's why there's revival. And God can revive our heart again. May God help us. Lord, I do thank you for so great a salvation. And I pray that you would do something in my heart, in our church family, in our friends, that we wouldn't see you as the angels see you. But as Peter says, we ought to see you with so much greater awe and appreciation because we've been saved. Now, Lord, if there's someone here who is not saved, who needs to be saved, don't let them go out deceived. Don't let them go out trying to hide for they cannot escape the judgment of God. And so I pray that you would help us all to revel in the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you work now in this invitation, I pray? With heads still bowed, if you need to get saved this morning, I urge and invite you, would you come? Let somebody take a Bible and show you how to be saved. If you want to come and just thank God, do so. You need to come to get revived, get revived. Let's enjoy Jesus this morning.